All right. In the first half of today's program, I alluded to what we're about to do now, which is speak with someone who has made a cross-country journey by automobile in the midst of this epidemic we're having in the United States. Uh, I should point out that our guest is the person most up on coronavirus of anyone uh, I can I can cite. She was badgering me, I think, in early February to pay attention to what was going on because she was convinced it was going to be a big deal. And, of course, she was right. For the uh, purposes of this interview, we're going to call her Ms. Susan Parker because although her story is true, the names need to be changed to protect the innocent. <laughs> Welcome back to Radio Parallax, Ms. Parker. Uh, thanks. It's good to be back. We should point out to our listeners who don't, uh, we're not apprised of this fact, that you have been ahead of the curve on this whole viral thing. Uh, you were you were complaining to me in late January that people were not paying enough attention to this. It was a big deal. It was going to be a big deal. And why wasn't I on board? And I was a little late, but I did get on board finally. Yes, I was quite well prepared. I Obviously, it was not my plan to drive cross-country. There was a death in my daughter-in-law's family. The entire family left to go to the funeral. My son and my granddaughter were left alone in Florida. He was not allowed to attend because he's military, and the military would not let him travel out of the area. So my daughter and I decided to drive cross-country, go stay with him for a week, and help take care of the baby, and just spend some time together while we could. So I, I, knowing how paranoid you've been, I'm sure that meant you took your own bedding, etc. I took everything, uh, pillows, blankets, <laughs> an array of cleaning supplies. I had disinfectant. I had Clorox wipes, gallons of hand sanitizer, back when you could still buy all these things. <laughs> mm -hmm. I have face masks. I have a few N95s and quite a few knockoffs of the N95 masks. So I, I did feel that I was uh, going to be able to keep myself pretty clean on the trip. So first question, how was it in Orange County, and then how was it when you crossed the border into Arizona? I'm in Costa Mesa. I'm a half an hour away from Los Angeles. Los Angeles is being hit pretty hard. So y we yes. are aware that, uh, that there is a danger around us. It is unusual to see someone not wearing a mask. There has been some backlash, and the requirements for masks have been removed, but people largely going to grocery stores um, are still wearing masks anytime they're in any kind of indoor contact with other people. So masks are the norm. 80%? I would say more than that in the grocery store. Okay. Less than that, obviously, in some other places, but definitely places where people have to go and there's a vulnerable population, people are masking up. So you crossed over to Arizona, and I, I gather that there was a reduction in the percentage of people that were wearing masks. Yes. Now we stopped to get a, some takeout food at a fine dining restaurant that was had just reopened its service. And we went to pick the order up. And the first thing I noticed was any place I'd been to get food in California people were masked up, less than half the clientele, even waiting for food, 
waiting in lines. Less than half the people were wearing masks. There was no real social distancing going on, even among people, as I said, obviously, I, I get taking your mask off when you were eating, but I'm talking people standing in line. Maybe they were spaced out a little bit, trying a little bit, but I was not comfortable, so um, I backed off. I had my masks on. I was I felt fairly impenetrable. We were, we were, in fact, outside, but it was obvious that the attitude was much more, oh, what a relief, this is over, I don't need to worry about wearing a mask anymore. Right. So you went on to New Mexico, where I gather it was a little better? Well, New Mexico, because we got a late start leaving the Los Angeles area, was going to be our first night sweeping. Right. So the first thing I noticed upon entering New Mexico was the road signs, the Amber Alert signs. Yeah. And it, as soon as we hit New Mexico, the sign said, masks are mandatory. And then I think there was a second notice saying all workers can receive COVID testing, something along those lines. So I immediately noticed, I mean, they, they wanted this known immediately upon entering on an interstate that things were different. Masks were mandatory. That, that made me feel a little better. So we stopped at a hotel in uh, Lordsburg, New Mexico, late late at night, uh, went in. Clerk at the desk was wearing a surgical mask and gloves, and he had a large bottle of hand sanitizer on the desk. He begins to check me in. I am also masked. I, I'm not gloved because I'm, I've got my own hand sanitizer right. in my pocket. He's probably mid to late 20s, and I was very surprised when he looked at me and said, so why are you traveling? Do you think it's safe? Uh-huh. And I was surprised with the question and somewhat happy to hear that, you know, someone his age was taking this seriously. And I explained that right. there had been a death in the family was the only thing that really had got us out. I asked him about precautions they were taking, and he said, the room I was going to be staying in, no one has set foot in the room for at least 72 hours. Upon checkout, the room will be cleaned, and the room will not be used again for 72 hours. Well, they're obviously taking it seriously in New Mexico. Yes. And when we stopped for gas in New Mexico, we stopped for food, masks, masks, everybody was just wearing masks. I even saw people the next morning walking in the open air wearing cloth masks. They were clearly comfortable wearing masks, and... It seemed obvious to me that if you were not masked, it would look out of place. So that was New Mexico. Okay. Anyone who's driven across the United States knows that if you if you want to go across the breadth of the Lone Star State of Texas, you got a lot of driving to do. And I guess Texas seems to have a rather skeptical attitude about all of this. And I guess you experienced that firsthand? Yes. It was quite the eye-opener leaving Las Cruces, New Mexico, you're only about 30 miles maybe from El Paso. First of all, I noticed a large uptick in the traffic on the freeways, businesses that were open. We took our trip a couple of weeks ago, so largely everything was still closed in California, was still closed in New Mexico. They had clearly just started reopening in Arizona, but once you hit Texas, Everything they could open was open. So I'm noticing open signs on businesses. I'm noticing no masks. I mean no masks. The highway sign was probably the most distressing part 
and I had to read, you know, read it a hundred times because state is so big. The highway sign, and I, I did memorize it, burned it into my mind. Uh-huh. It was a two-part sign. The first part of the sign flashed, thank you, frontline workers. Okay. The second part said, that's it. That's the sign. <laughs> and it was clearly very mocking of the signs that I had just left in New Mexico. Right. Saying masks are required, um, COVID testing available for all workers. There's an area of Texas where you encounter very little for a distance of time. And we stopped for gas, got out. It was hot. I had a small dog with me. Um, I went in to use the restroom which I will say that was probably the most distressing part about traveling was having to use restrooms. Sure. So, again, I was well prepared. The restroom was cleaner when I left than when I got there. <laughs> but I, my daughter stayed in the car, left the air conditioning running with the engine up, and when I came out, the battery in the car had died. A little bit distressing. We're, we're kind of on the outskirts of nowhere. I don't know exactly where we were, but there was nothing around but this one gas station. A very nice couple stopped, jumped the car for us, and informed us that the town of Van Horn, Texas, was just up the road, less than an hour's drive. So the car is running, it's full of gas, I'm, I'm like, well, we just won't stop, we'll get to Van Horn, Texas. Van Horn is a small town in the middle of not much of anything. I, I imagine it exists as a ranching and perhaps to service the interstate. But it did have an auto parts store. Yes, it did. Okay. It had a Napa auto parts, and I went in to inquire as to whether or not they would have a battery that would work in my car. It was a, what I would call a normal-sized Napa, the same size as a Napa that I would walk into here in California. There were quite a few people in there, including behind the counter, which was maybe 10 feet long, there were between four and six people filtering back and forth in this and maybe another eight or ten customers wandering around the store. And I'm guessing not a mask among them. There were two masks, in fact, and I was wearing both of them. <laughs> okay. I do think had I not been a woman, words would have been spoken to me about the mask. I was getting a lot of sideways glances. Uh-huh. Of a disparaging nature. Uh, to, to put it mildly, they were disapproving. And they did have my battery. And I stood at the register, interacted a couple of feet away from this nice man who did offer to put the battery in for me. Gave him my credit card, um, which I sanitized with a wipe before I gave it to him, which also got me a strange look. And... <laughs> I asked him as he was putting the battery in, so you guys, nobody wears masks, I guess. And he told me that his boss had called his attorney and made sure that they didn't have to wear masks. Wow. He was quite proud that his boss had taken this step so that nobody would force a single person in this small store to put a mask on. <laughs> and... My thought was, these 12 people in this store, at least six of whom I was within a couple of feet, 
having just left a place that has, at the time, probably 40,000 known cases of yeah. COVID. Yeah. And I'm yeah. thinking, literally, you don't know what a risk I am to you and your town. This is enough people that I could have infected this store and you would have taken it home to your wives, your children, your girlfriends. Yeah, you, you could have taken out Van Horn, Texas. You did not. You did not because you, yes, not. you did not. But who knows, since you've been there, whether somebody else has. Right. And it was just that random of an occurrence of my battery dying and having to stop and going into a business that probably doesn't get a lot of interstate travelers unless, you know, something goes wrong with the car. So it, they are going to get some, and I'm hoping they don't get the wrong person in there, like I said. Right. Because they were all very nice. They were clearly misinformed about what a mask was trying to do to them. Well, the next state would be Louisiana, and that is well known to be a hot spot. How did your experience go there? Well, when we entered into Louisiana, um, I was curious to see the road sign, and the road sign in Louisiana, the warning said something to the effect of, get serious, Louisiana, stop COVID. Okay. Something along those lines. It was clear, though, that they were, they had seen the darker side, at least in New Orleans. Okay. However, there were more masks, but there seemed to be some confusion about when and where you should pull your mask down. <laughs> okay. So the, the nice little girl that took our order for lunch made sure to pull it down so that when she spoke <laughs> to me, I could hear her clearly. Well, that was very thoughtful of her. Yes, it was. Like I said, she had the mask on up until the time she talked. Yeah, but it muffles your voice. Well, yes, and it stops your droplets. It was not the deliberate defiance and anger. In Texas, it was clear that these masks were out to take their freedom. Whereas in Louisiana, it was more of a lack of knowledge. A little more information, I thought, might be a good thing. All right. So back in the car and on we go. So I'm sure you cut right through the bottom of those small states, Mississippi, uh, Alabama, probably didn't stop. Alabama. We stopped. It was just for gas. And like I said, double mask. I put my gloves on, threw my gloves away when I was done, and then sanitized my hands and my credit card. And as I said, I spray disinfected the bottom of my shoes. I I might have been a little bit overkill, but, you know, at this point in time, I felt unclean just for having driven through a couple of states. So you wound up in Florida. Florida's not noted for taking this very seriously. Uh, what was your experience there? Well, my first experience in Florida was being stopped at a COVID checkpoint. Okay. It was the only one that obviously we encountered having driven nearly coast to coast. And um, it was about a 15-minute delay. We finally get up to the um, couple of uh, highway patrol, I think, and... I didn't see anybody that looked medical. They didn't have a building off to the side. Um, I put my mask on hastily again. My thought is that I am a potential risk. And as you have stated before, that I have been following this little flu quite closely since, well, the first day I, I, I read any information on it was on New Year's Eve. I read the notice that said, China had reported five cases of a unknown pneumonia to the World Health Organization. So I have been following it since 
I read that story and went, oh, I don't think so. I really was aware. I was aware of super spreaders. I'm aware that by the time a town knows it's sick, it's too late. So it was really important for me, having just driven cross country, that I was not going to be a problem. So I put my mask on, rolled my window down, prepared to answer the questions. If he had said, get the heck out of Texas I would, or out of Florida, I would not have blamed him. Right. Rolled the window down, and I'm guessing he saw my license plate. Uh-huh. Drove up in a car with a California plate. He rattled off maybe five or six states quite rapidly. New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, I believe Oklahoma, Louisiana, and asked me if I'd been in any of those states. And I said, yes, I have been in Louisiana. I was just in Louisiana. The next question was, did I spend the night in Louisiana? Now, I spent the night, my second night, in Beaumont, Texas, which is the last town before Louisiana. Okay. So I spent the night as close to Louisiana in a place with no masks. There were no masks on the guests. There was, I think, at least one person working at the hotel did have a mask on, but I think that was the only other one I saw besides the one my daughter and myself were wearing. So I, so I told him that, yes, I, I had been in Louisiana, but I had not spent the night, and he said, just go on through. <laughs> that, that was it. Welcome to Florida. Welcome to Florida. All right. Well, for the remainder of your time in Florida and for the remainder of your, tri- your trip back, uh, what was the thing that really struck you about all of it? Well, I guess the difference from state to state in the attitude towards an infectious disease and a little bit of despair in knowing that you can take all the precautions you want and then someone drives across your border and is not taking these same precautions. It, it seemed to me that it would negate a lot of the good. Other than that, um, it was the attitude that, to me, a face covering is a hope that we can get back to life as normal, as normal as we can. It's a hope that we can get out and start interacting. It's a small thing to do. I've been wearing it for months every time I leave the house. I'm used to it. Yes, it's a little inconvenient at times, but you do get used to it. Something just occurred to me I, when we talked before. You said that uh, one thing you kept you kept hearing the same refrain from people in Florida. That that is true. I was informed by a number of people that they were so over this coronavirus thing. <laughs> they were just they're over it. They were not. They were so they're just over it. They're not going to do it anymore. They're done with it. I thought we're in trouble. Yeah. Well, that's the word I've heard out of the White House. That the people are reporting from the White House that the president he's just so over this. There he is. All right. Well, you you got home safe. You you managed to pull this off. You did not get sick. You exercised precautions, and I guess I guess that's an inspiration that it that it that it can be done if you're careful. Well, I, I think I was fortunate in that I have good quality masks because I did wear them. As I said, I wore two masks to counter for the fact that people I was speaking to were not wearing masks. I don't know that everybody has that option. I mean, the mask is protecting the other person. Like I said, I protected them, and fortunately, I had masks that would protect me as well, but I know most people are not, as I said, most people are not as prepared as I was, so. All right, well, we're not going to recommend that anybody take a cross-country trip right now, at least till the dust settles on all of this, which is, I think, a long way away, but uh, it is nice to know that 
If you're if you're sensible about this, you can really minimize your risks. Absolutely. It was a little disconcerting that they're not taking the precautions that could easily cut down the transmission. We've taken a, a position on this show that uh, given the attitudes we've we've bumped into, and now you've confirmed from firsthand experience that there's there's going to be hell to pay uh, later this month and afterwards. It may take a bit longer to get into the small towns because they're a bit more isolated. But once it gets into the small towns, it's it's going home from the auto supply place. It's going home from the restaurants and the hotels. It is going to go home with these people. Uh, Miss Susan Parker, we thank you for your input, uh, and we, we're glad you were able to do this safely. And we may want to touch base with you again since you are uh, our Southern California correspondent. All right, well, thanks. Keep spreading the... Uh the good word. All right, this might be a good time to do one of our favorite features in this program, the good, the bad, and the ugly. All right, according to The Week magazine, it was a good week this week for concert goers who may soon be able to enjoy live music again within the high-tech confines of an antiviral protective suit called the Microshell. Its L.A.-based designers say the, quote, fun-to-wear, unquote, macro-shell has an onboard air filtration system, as well as lights, speakers, and snap-on canisters for vaping and drinking. I don't know. There's something, there's just something wrong about snap-on canisters for vaping. But if any of you out there plan to buy one, let us know how it goes. I might buy one. All right. Going to vape? Of course. And it was a, a bad week a few weeks back for Yin after the Académie Française, the guardian body of the French language, declared that COVID-19 is a feminine noun requiring the article la, despite a few described as faulty les in the media. And yes, we have to say that one of the dumb things about the Romance languages is the fact that it describes gender to inanimate objects. Say what you want about the faults of the English language, which, uh, which there are many, but, you know, thank God we don't do that. And it was an ugly week last week for winnowing, we'd have to say, after the Dutch National Institute for Public Health advised single people to find and largely confine themselves to one sex buddy. Yes, sex buddy in English for the duration of the pandemic. Reason the Institute, the more people you see the greater the chance of spreading the coronavirus. Although I don't think they meant C as the operative verb. The biblical C. And you probably noticed a couple weeks back that it appeared to be both a bad and ugly week for ventilation after the video went viral showing a Kentucky woman approaching a gas station cashier wearing a face mask into which a hole had been cut around the nose and mouth. The woman explained, this makes it a lot easier to breathe. And you know, I, I can't argue with that. And speaking of masks, we have from the Only in America file the fact that a few weeks back, a Dallas firm fired an executive for a threatening online rant against face masks. Kevin Bain of Thompson & Knight said that any store requiring masks, quote, will lose my business forever, unquote, and boasted of his Glock 21 shooting range results, saying, quote, I have more power than they do, adding, they just don't know it yet. 
The firm said it was deeply sorry for the situation. And finally, last week, it was a good and bad week for working from home with the news that a Wall Street bank, in fact, had some junior employees working at home, but their boss, the Wall Street banker, blasted them for not immediately responding to his 3 a.m. email, said the executive at PJT Partners. I sleep an average of five hours or less. Expect the same or more from my junior team. You know, we think we see a place where Kevin Bain of Thompson & Knight, recently fired, might might want to take up residence with his Glock 21. Kind of got a feeling that that Wall Street banker won't demand an immediate response from that guy at 3 a.m. You know, you're getting kind of desperate to talk about something that's not related to, uh, you know, virology or bad political responses to virology and epidemiology. Let's wing it for a moment and talk about things being read. We've got a lot of time on our hands these days. Uh, we all do, don't we? So uh, I think I mentioned a few weeks back that I decided to read one of the books written by Watergate burglar E. Howard Hunt. Hunt penned something like 45 spy thrillers uh, during his time working for the CIA. I read one of them a few weeks back, and I have to say I wasn't very impressed. But then again, I recently read some Ian Fleming, and I wasn't all that impressed either. Now, several years back, we had on this program the son of Mr. E. Howard Hunt, St. John Hunt. We found the story so interesting, we had him on for, I believe, two full hours. Did we not, Mr. McMillan? I'm not quite sure about the time, but it was interesting. But uh, sitting next to the spy thriller written by E. Howard Hunt on my bookshelf, I had a biography written about Hunt. It was written, I think, in 1973, before Richard Nixon had to resign as a result of the Watergate uh, scandal. And before a lot of what we now know about E. Howard Hunt came out, this uh, biography by Tad Schultz, noted investigator journalist, was remarkable for what a hit piece it was on Hunt. Now, E. Howard Hunt, I guess you could say, was something of an unsavory character in, in many ways. But the biography portrayed him as a boob, an incompetent, a guy who couldn't get anything done right, which I think... Uh, had a lot to do with the fact that the people feeding Mr. Tad Schultz information about E. Howard Hunt were his former friends that used to be his superiors in the Central Intelligence Agency. They therefore had uh, sort of a vested interest in portraying him in a certain light, shall we say. Now, in the years since this biography called The Compulsive Spy was published, uh, Howard Hunt makes appearances in all sorts of other books, which I have on my bookshelf, including David Talbot's The Devil's Chessboard. Talbot explained how it was that while he was working for the CIA, no less than Alan Dulles put Hunt to work on his legendary book, The Craft of Intelligence. I think it's fair to say that based on his literary skills alone, Hunt was not a screw-up. The thing that was so interesting we talked to St. John Hunt about regarding his dad, E. Howard, was that late in life, Howard made a, um, a deathbed confession regarding what he said took place, really, in the JFK assassination. As a guy who spent most of his career, or at least a lot of his career, in the Central Intelligence Agency uh, manufacturing stories and altering uh, uh, narratives, it's pretty clear that to the very end he didn't lose the habit and that uh, that so-called deathbed confession isn't obviously the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. 
But doggone it, it's interesting. How much time we got left, Mr. McMillan? Uh, three minutes, I think. So in the three minutes we have left, I will do an obituary or two. Well, one and a half. We did note the passing uh, some time back from coronavirus of Roy Horn, who was half of the famed illusionist team Siegfried and Roy, dazzled Las Vegas audiences for decades by levitating tigers, making elephants vanish, and transforming himself into a snake. He passed away May 8th at age 75. And sadly, we note the passing of comedy legend Fred Willard. It was noted that Fred Willard's comedy improv style kept him relevant for more than 50 years in films such as This is Spinal Tap, Best in Show, and Waiting for Guffman, all of which were mockumentaries, mostly directing and always featuring Christopher Guest. Fred Willard played dunderheaded characters who (laughs) matched ardent sincerity with a certain unwitting ridiculousness. As a child, Fred Willard fell in love with sketch comedy after seeing the 1950s vaudeville silliness of Spike Jones. Following a stint in the Army, he moved to New York City to train as an actor. He took serious roles, said the Washington Post, but ran into a problem while appearing in a Tennessee Williams play. His line readings inadvertently made audiences laugh. So he embraced comedy, spent a year in Chicago with the improv troupe Second City, and in 1977, grabbed the spotlight playing Jerry Hubbard, the dim-witted, eager sidekick of a small-town talk show host Fernwood in Fernwood Tonight. He was well-teamed there with Martin Mull. We've made no secret of our admiration on this program for This is Spinal Tap, which this correspondent regards as probably the funniest movie ever. And I have to say that Fred Willard's scene in that movie is one of its fall-down funny moments. I saw Fred Willard in passing at that event honoring Mort Saul's 80th birthday uh, many years back. We reached out to him through Phil Proctor to try and uh, arrange for him coming on this program, but sad to say that we we exchanged a few emails and uh, somehow nothing came of it, which is frankly a darn shame. We would have been honored to have had Fred Willard on this program. And this program, like all of them, was produced by Edward McMillan. You have been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and we'll see you next week.